following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, here we are. Um, good to see everyone. Welcome to Common Ground. Those of you who have been coming for a while, those who may be newer. Uh, my name is Mira, Mira Young, and um, I've been part of the Twin City Vipassana community for many years and um, long-time practitioner here. And I'm happy to be here to support Mark on his retreat. Don't worry, he'll be back soon, very soon. And um, um, I teach and uh, practice psychotherapy and teach meditation just on the block um, at Rivers Way Meditation Center. And I also um, teach mindfulness-based stress reduction courses and, and do some other teaching of meditation to therapists and the like. So um, I'm really um, honored to be here. And tonight's talk is on um, the third noble truth and uh, finding freedom here and now. I also, upon reflection, thought it may be more about um, middle life in the middle way. <laughs> so even if you're not in middle life, um, you'll either get there or you've been there or you're in it. So um, I'd like to start with a poem called A Morning Offering. So even if it's an evening offering, may it be a blessing for you. This is by John O'Donohue. I bless the night that nourished my heart to set ghosts of longing free into the flow and figure of dream that went to harvest from the dark, bread for the hunger no one sees. All that is eternal in me, welcome the wonder of this day, the field of brightness it creates, offering time for each thing to arise and illuminate. I place on the altar of dawn the quiet loyalty of breath the tent of thought where I shelter, wave of desire I am sure to, and all beauty drawn to the eye. May my mind come alive today to the invisible geography that invites me to new frontiers, to break the dead shell of yesterdays, to risk being disturbed and changed. May I have the courage today to live the life that I would love, to live the life that I would love, to postpone my dream no longer, but to do at last what I came here for and waste my heart on fear no more. To do at last what I came here for and waste my heart on fear no more. So I'm just going to quote the Buddha um, and talk and talk a little bit about just summary of the, the Four Noble Truths very quickly. Um, this is from um, um, the 44 Cases of Knowledge. The Buddha um, talks to the monks about um, what are these 44 Cases of Knowledge. And the Blessed One said, knowledge of aging and death, knowledge of its origin, knowledge of its cessation, knowledge of the way leading to its cessation, 
and then so forth. Knowledge of birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, and and so forth. So the third noble truth is really about cessation, about freedom, about this letting go and this quality of really being with life and things as they are and this radical acceptance. Um, the Four Noble Truths, just to summarize, are the truth of stress or suffering, unsatisfactoriness in life, and most of us know this. We can't get what we want all satisfied by external conditions, which are always changing, which is the second Noble Truth, is the truth of craving and clinging, and what is the causes of suffering that have to do with our aversion and our clinging and well if we just get everything under control and get what we want and how we want it then we'll be happy and I don't want this and I want more of that and, and it's a continuing ongoing um, cause of our suffering because it, as soon as we get it what happens? Impermanent changes. So, And then the third noble truth is the cessation, this freedom that's possible here and now um, that's not dependent on conditions, external circumstances, and that's our nature, actually. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to freedom, and that is the eightfold path of how we live mindfully, our sila, how we live in alignment with our, our moral values or ethics, and that the other part is um, um, the factors of practice, developing our concentration, our mindfulness, and then the third part of the Eightfold Path is the um, practices to develop wisdom, insight into the fact that everything changes, things are impermanent, and that ultimately it's not about this uh, separate self, this ego, you know, just trying to get its, its um, needs met in the external world. So um, here we are you know, in a very difficult economy. And we could be really quite miserable and fearful, or we can also know this is what's happening, do what we can, and um, have, have some peace of mind, even in the midst of difficult conditions. So that's just a little summary of, of those. And um, in the reflection from Jack Cornfield, that little meditation on being simple and transparent, um, you know, somewhere in us, we kind of know, we kind of know, we know if we're, we're caught up in um, not accepting ourselves or judging ourselves in some way. We know, we know kind of what's really truthful on some level, where, where our hearts open, what, what are some of the things that get in our way. And, 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 and on some level, maybe some of us it's further away than others, but deep down when you listen, you might be able to, to feel what those, those simple truths are for how you want to lead, lead your life and what brings happiness and freedom. Um, I came across this, some readings in this exploration, um, and this is from uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu, who's a monk, and uh, he wrote this piece called Close to the Heart. And so we're going to take this sort of loftiness, freedom, cessation, and bring it really down into the here and now, to the nitty-gritty. And I really like how he talks about this. Um, he said, OK, time to practice. 
There's times to talk about practice that's helpful and when it gets in the way. The best way to solve the problem is simply to do the practice. When you talk about the practice, you get lost in abstract space. You forget the whole purpose of Dhamma is to open our hearts. That's the whole point. The big issues that we carry around inside of us, our fears, our sufferings, our whole sense of what life is all about, to the extent that talking about practice like we're doing tonight helps to bring perspective on these things is useful. But that talk has to be part of a larger doing, something um, about those problems. Sometimes the doing may seem strange. Here we are sitting, watching our breath. What does that do? It brings us close to the heart and very close to our minds. Of all the things we can know outside of our minds, the breath is the closest. As we are one-on-one -on -one with the breath, and the ch it changes our perspective on things. We let go of outside distractions and ultimately turn our attention to the other parts of, of the, what the mind's aware of, what's going on here. He talks about when he was first ordained that he realized that the practice was very foreign to him. He's, he's a Westerner. Um, he, he, um, he's an American man, and he thought it felt very foreign the chanting up on this hill, you know, in another country, and um, in Thailand. And, and finally, one evening, it really hit me. I was going through these six elements, and I got on this chant, and I realized I wasn't chanting about some foreign abstract idea of consciousness. I was chanting about my own awareness, my own mind, my own heart, right here, right now. I felt as if a huge block of ice had shattered inside me. I was able to open up and realize that meditation wasn't some strange foreign thing I was doing to myself. But subconsciously, deep down, there was a feeling it was alien from another culture. That night it became mine. My awareness of my mind. My awareness of things really deep inside. The Dhamma was no longer a foreign mold I was trying to impose on my mind. It became a message to my deepest awareness. And I became aware of a real tenderness deep down. A tenderness not in the sense of being nice or fuzzy, but in a sense of having been wounded, of needing some help. There was a need for some healing there, and the meditation was what it needed. And I wouldn't say I gained anything from the practice up till that point, but the quality I gained changed that night. And he talks about the term, I like this term, patipat um, in Thai means to practice, as when we're practicing the Dhamma. It also means to look after somebody, patipat, to look after somebody. And he said sometimes the Thai ajans say, we're not here to patipat, the Buddha's teachings were here to patipat our own minds, to look after our own minds. So that's really what the practice is about. Now, it's not becoming some perfect meditator. You know? It's looking after our own hearts and minds. So what makes it so difficult for us to let go, to be with these simple truths, to just patipat our own hearts and minds? Well, um, Ajahn Chah is a venerable forest master who lived in this past century. And um, 
um, he talks about how hard this is. And I know I really, really relate to this. Um, so first of all, he, there's a quote. The truth is that our world of ours, there's nothing to be anxious about. Nothing is inherently tragic or delightful. Only one who truly has a feel for a dhamma, for the dhamma, doesn't need to take hold of anything and dwells in ease. He said, we, when we've grown up, we get buried in this grasping and attachment. We give meaning to things. We believe we exist as a self-entity and things belong to us. He says that the wise have said that moving a mountain, moving a mountain, have you ever felt like this? That moving a mountain from one place to another is easier than moving the self-conceit of people. <laughs> you know, you can use explosives, he says, to level a mountain and then move the earth. But the tight grasping of our self-conceit, you know, and that self-conceit, it's not a healthy sense of esteem, you know, it's that sense of me and mine and my way or the highway views and beliefs that we torture and torment ourselves. I see this with people I work with. It's like, um, excuse me, do you know those are just thoughts in the mind? It's like, no, no, that's, that's what I believe. That's the way it is, you know, painful, painful. All right, so, so he says, um, so, but the tight grasping of our self-conceit, oh man, the wise can teach us till our dying day, but they can't get rid of it. It remains hard and fast. Our wrong ideas, bad tendencies remain so solid and unbudging, we're not even aware of it. So the wise have said that removing self-conceit and turning wrong understanding into right understanding is about the hardest thing to do. And you're going to love this analogy. <laughs> I mean, let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Um, he talks about that if we come across a pile of buffalo dung. <laughs> we don't think of it as ours. <laughs> we don't want to pick it up. <laughs> True? <laughs> we just leave it where it is because we know what it is. It's like that. But oh my God. <laughs> my, oh my, he doesn't say God, he says oh. My whole pile of dung doesn't have the value of the smallest piece of gold. And then you will want gold instead. You won't want dung anymore, even if you recognize and remain an owner of a pile of dung. So when we start to recognize that these things are just really not so golden and wonderful, and they really are pretty stinky, and, and you know, then it's like you get that desire to let go. You want, you want, you realize it's really not worth it. And I'm going to bring this a practical example um, in my own life um, shortly here, which is where um, the middle, the middle um, age, middle way comes in. Um, I have a couple of really elderly parents, um, and um, and uh, my mother has been quite ill. The last three months have been kind of a hell round for her in and out of the hospital, fell down, went into a rehab center, broke a rib, you know, um, different problems. It's very, very weak. I, I've been talking with her regularly, and I spent about a week there. And um, um, they found a young caregiver to take care of her, who's really lovely, 
and uh, my mother would listen to the young caregiver. <laughs> For me, if I'd say, Mom, you can do it, or Mom, this don't cajole me. <laughs> it was like I couldn't do anything right. You know, I wasn't getting it. And, and she was in such a state of frustration because she's usually very independent even though she has ill health. And this is the first time I've seen her at home. I mean, in a hospital setting, yes, a commode and whatever, and nurses toileting her. But at home, having to be diapered and on the commode and, you know, the whole nine yards. And she needed medications about nine times a day. And um, um, very difficult situation. And I, and then I have a dad who has Alzheimer's, so he his you know his mind is full of holes and he's acting reacting to the situation, and it's it's you know and I, every now and then I'd sort of sit back and go, wow this is really wild, and um, and I'm trying to be mindful and all this compassionate, and um, one day. Um, the caregiver is going to give her some time off, and um, and so I was going to be handling it at least for a good 24-hour period on my own. And um, I was running at about five and a half hours sleep a night because the caregiver and I were working as a team. And um, you know, there's things pasted up on the cupboards with all the medications and everything you have to do with or without food. And some of you are very familiar with this. This is like like really over the top for me, plus his and boxes and and pills and and um, so you know I'm really trying to be getting it down, the routine. And I'm thinking this is a really mind numbing routine, you know, by day five or whatever. And um, so I thought so anyway, one one morning I had to get my mother up and on the commode, and she was did not want to get up. You know, in the meantime, the clock is ticking, the meds have to be given, this has to be done, that has to be changed. You know, father will have to get, you know, like the whole thing is happening. And I'm getting more and more frustrated with her. And I'm, and I'm watching this frustration. She's saying, oh, and I'm too tired, I can't. I'm like, and I talked to her, I said, mom, it's you and me here all day, please let's cooperate, let's be friends, you know. And she was not going to be moved. And, and, and I found myself this rise up, this frustration, like I just wanted to say, y'all, you're getting up. But you know, you can't, even with a thin 83-year-old woman, you can't just lift them up single-handedly. I can't. So I was at that point, and I felt this frustration, and then the Dharma came in. It was like the third noble truth just sort of flew into my, my awareness. I mean, I didn't even know where it came from, and it was like, all of a sudden, I took a breath, and I looked at her, and I said, Mom, thank you for teaching me about patience. Who said that? <laughs> this is, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, Mom, thank you. And it was like the whole thing just dissolved. And then shortly after that, she, I mean, my, all my stress and frustration and trying to whatever it just went out like just and I really was grateful for her teaching me about patience and I think she felt that on some level and she got up shortly after that and we got her into bed and cleaned up and everything so I just think there's that freedom right there you know with the shit and the whole excuse my French you know the whole thing you know right there on the commode 
you know, recognizing the gold and the dung and the difference between the two. Um, letting go of that self-conceit. Um, it was interesting that during that time, actually there was a period where she was still in the hospital before she came home. Um, and one night I went off to a movie and to like escape <laughs> after my dad had gone to bed. And I went to see a movie called, Is Anybody There? <laughs> Did anybody see that? Anyway, Michael came as it, and he's wonderful. But it, what it was was about um, a family that had lost job or whatever, and they had taken in elderly people to care for them <laughs> in their home. <laughs> and they, <laughs> people were dying and sick and crazy. <laughs> minutes to get to this movie, <laughs> but I left back home, back in my parents' apartment. You know, you just have to laugh. You just have to laugh. So, um, anyway, um, so um, Philip Moffat, don't be too scared. These, don't, these things don't mean anything. <laughs> um, he talks about cultivating cessation and how do we know um, that we're starting to get free and what are the stages of realization along the way um, where we can start to recognize that um, you know we're starting to free up from this self-conceit and from this, this suffering and um, so he, questions like is my practice stronger do I suffer less do I cause less suffering do I have a clearer, calmer perspective in life? What matters is you make your life your practice. And that no matter whatever exalted states or, or even difficult states you have along the way, they're just states. And we don't cling to them. We can enjoy them but or we can watch them. But you know, these are some questions you can ask yourself. and. Um, this, the three stages of realization that he talks about of, in, the, in the Third Noble Truth are transformation, transcendence, and transparency. So um, there's, there's states of mind, and then there's stages of awareness. And we tend to get these confused. I'm not going to go in depth about this, but we might have a really good meditation and think, oh, yeah. You know, and maybe we have a series of them. And we think, oh, wow, I'm really coming along. But then what happens when that state of mind disappears? Say you're really concentrated. Or you're sitting on your cushion and you're judging your practice. Say, I can't concentrate. I can't meditate. My mind is wandering. But the meanwhile, you're sitting there and you're building that capacity to sit with difficult mind states. You know, the muscle of sitting, like with the mother on the commode, you know, um, without doing harm. <laughs> to yourself or the other. So, um, you know, it's like we, we get confused. And these stages of awareness are really where we start to see that we're living the Dharma, where we start to embody that. That each successive stage of awareness, your mind is controlled 
less and less by pleasant, unpleasant conditions until you reach the final stage. So there's that ordinary stage of awareness, and then you, the second one, the transformation is about tr 